So welcome to the first Business Growth Club podcast. My name is Neil Foley, founder of the Business Growth Club, a club aimed squarely at helping micro and small business owners looking to grow. The purpose of these podcasts is to share the experience and knowledge of our members, thereby helping other business owners. In this particular podcast, we're looking at an often neglected area, namely how important it is to have legal contracts in place. We will share with you top tips and advice that will make you think and take action to protect yourselves. We're very fortunate this morning to have a lawyer with us who specialises in contract law and works with business owners here in Norfolk and East Anglia. So welcome to Ryan Cracknell, Managing Director of Cracknell Law here in Norwich. And thanks for agreeing to help and share your knowledge and experience. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's get straight to the meat of the subject, Ryan. Why is it important for business owners to have legal contracts and agreements in place? Okay, so I think the main point is certainty. You want to have a very clear position on what your rights and obligations are um, between your customers and suppliers. um, And ultimately, you want to reduce your legal risk and exposure to them. So by having a clear set of terms, conditions or an agreement, is fit for purpose for that situation or whatever the transaction is it just ensures that each party knows where they stand and if something goes wrong you know what the position is without having to go through the court process hopefully <laughs> hopefully so that makes life easier doesn't it so yeah. so when you say fit for purpose are there different ones for contracts for sort of if you're b to b or b to c are there different terms of business that you would have yes potentially so um when you have a consumer relationship, um, there are different terms which need to be considered. Okay. There's a huge amount of consumer legislation um, which dictates how you have to deal with consumers. So, for example, cancellation rights. Um, you have to offer consumers cancellation rights. Um, uh, most of the time it's 14 days. It does depend slightly on what the um, goods or services you're providing are, for some exceptions. Mm-hmm. But for businesses... You can basically agree whatever terms you like. There's not too many terms implied by law. Um, so, yeah, basically it it comes down to bargaining strengths between the parties then. Mm-hmm. Whereas consumers, it is um, more grounded in legislation and case mm-hmm. law. And presumably constantly changing legislation. I think May yeah. next year, isn't there? There's some quite big changes to the data protection rules. Uh, yep. Yeah, so um, the new general data protection regulations are coming mm-hmm. into force. Um, it is an EU regulation, but will still have effect in mm-hmm. the UK even after um, Brexit. So, you know, the law does change all the time. Laws like that you do have to be aware of because um, data protection regulations will give the law teeth and there'll be mm. significant fines if you breach data protection laws. So it's good to be mindful of things. Watch out for developments. Obviously, with Brexit, we're not quite clear on in terms mm. of how the law will change, but there's going to be have a lot of EU laws which will need to be embodied in UK law somehow. Positions could change, um, which keeps things fun for me. <laughs> True. And I guess, I mean, it's a, this may sound like a silly question, Ryan, but and one way, you know, what is the definition of a business? Because B2B sounds straightforward, but if, yeah. you're, if you're dealing with somebody who's self-employed yeah. or a, they're a partnership, is that legally, is that the legal definition or is there a legal definition? Yeah, so... Um, I think if you're acting on behalf of a business, you'll be treated as being a business. So if, okay. if you're in partnership, for example, it would meet the criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, self-employed, I think you'd, you'd have to view it on a case-by-case basis, potentially. Mm. You'd have to look at 
specific definitions within the consumer legislation. Can't think of them off the top of my head, but mm. I think if, um, as I said, if, if you're generally acting on behalf of business in the course of business, you'll be treated as a business rather than a consumer. Right. Okay. And is that true? I, 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 I don't know if this is your area or not in terms of the data protection as well, because there's different rules, aren't there, regarding B to C and B to B. I wonder what the definitions are there. Um, sorry, in terms of in terms of uh, you know you're supposed to have the unsubscribe if you're doing email yeah. uh, email marketing to people. You've got to give them the option to unsubscribe. Yeah, I think that's less clear whether you, when you're a business. But again, this is the definition of a business that I think is quite interesting. I think with data protection, I think it's across the board. Oh, okay. So, so it will apply basically what the Information Commissioner's Office, mm. who um, are the authority in the mm. UK for data protection, want to do is ensure that any personal data that's in the public domain is treated in, in a correct way. So okay. even if you're acting as a consumer, if you obtain um, third-party mm. email addresses, telephone mm. numbers, the list goes on. Mm. But essentially, um, you would need to protect that information. One of the things that people sometimes fall foul of is They've got business information like a business email address or a business telephone number, even if it's um, in the public domain, because it can be linked to a living individual, it's still treated as personal data and needs to be treated oh, okay. in the same way. Oh, cracky. So it'd be very easy to fall foul of that then, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's important that you've got privacy policies in place which say how you manage personal data, and that just ensures that you're covered from a legal perspective. Um, just because, obviously, if you're investigated by the ICO, you can say, well, I have thoughts about yeah. how I manage personal data and this is how I how I deal with it. I don't keep it longer than I need to, for example. Yeah. And is that what you should have on your website then? So, yeah, it, ideally have a privacy policy on a website. It's particularly important if you've got um, an email us function or contact yep. us function built into the website uh, because obviously then you'll be capturing the person's name, telephone yes. number, yes. email address and any other sensitive information which is included within the email itself. So, mm. um yeah, it's particularly important for that. You may want to have a separate privacy policy outside mm. of the website, but again, it depends on how you use that mm. data and, and how you obtain it as well. Yeah. So you, do, you don't see that many websites with privacy policies on there, do you? No, no. So th- this is something I see quite a lot. Um, mm. Ideally, each website should have terms of use, which dictates how users use the website. It ensures that... Um, you've got a breach contract claim against them, essentially, mm-hmm. if they breach terms of your website, if they copy any content from it, mm-hmm. um, ensures that you can say any information on the website is not guaranteed to be up to date or accurate at any given time, because obviously things can change. You, you don't want to be held responsible for mm-hmm. having incorrect information. Um, but also, because, because of the borderless nature of the internet, it's good to say, it's going by English or well, it's English oh, people in, in England or mm. Wales or whatever area you're in, um, just to give some kind of, clarity as to what applies um privacy policy as i mentioned is also key and then a cookies policy um so again this is a new requirement through the cookies directive Mm -hmm. um each website has to have a cookies policy you ideally need to have consent from users on your website to agree to cookies um you see on a lot of sites to get the cookies pop up Mm -hmm. and i agree and people just ignore it i mean there's discussions at the moment to do away with that but you'll still need to have a cookies policy crikey so there's it's good work for you, isn't there? There's plenty, there's plenty around, Ryan. By the yeah, time. The, <laughs> yeah, basically, and we've, we've tried to build a contract package which oh, okay. includes terms, conditions, and all your website policies into that. Oh, so it's easy then. Yeah, so we've we've identified that they're key documents for each business and tried to adapt our services to cover that 
on a cost-effective basis. So having been in the law for a while, Ryan, I mean, what are the mistakes that you see people making time and time again? Okay, so, yeah, I do see a lot of errors, and when it goes wrong, it can go really wrong. Mm. Um, So I guess the first thing is the copy and paste predicament, as I like to call it. (laughs) So people who have um, just obtained some terms offline, could be from a competitor's website, and they may change them slightly. But ultimately, um, it's easy not to know what you're looking at. And mm. I've seen type, several occasions where um, customers have copied terms and they're governed by completely different bodies of law. So US law, Canadian law, oh, you name it. And the, the reality is if there was ever an issue with those terms or in the commercial agreement, you would have to go to the US to enforce the terms or you go into the UK courts and saying, well, it's governed by US law. Can you apply US law? And they may well say, no, we won't. You, mm-hmm. should, you should have got it right. Mm. So there's no need to create that kind of uncertainty. Um, it, so there's choice of law, but also jurisdiction. So you could say this agreement is governed by the exclusive jurisdiction of the courts of Florida. Mm. And you, your your remedy then is only to be able to go over there. And if you, even if you did do that, they'd probably say, well, all the services are being provided in England. Why yep. are you doing it? So yeah, it's, it's an easily avoided issue. Um, other things where people copied contracts and not read through them properly. Um, and they've left contact details in for other businesses. And again, it just looks unprofessional. If you're sending these terms to your clients and you've got a completely different business contact email, mm. um, it, it just shows you haven't put the effort in and could also have breach breach uh, or issues in terms of um, that party approaching you if they find out they've copied your terms. Mm-hmm. Um, again, all easy, avoidable. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a few other situations where um, it's gone really wrong as well. So... You can pay um, quite significant amounts to have your terms done for you. Mm-hmm. But again, if you don't um, pay attention to what's being created mm-hmm. for you, it could be completely wrong. So, for example, I had a client who um, paid a significant amount to have terms, conditions, business created for them, but they're completely focused on goods rather than services. So, again, having that clarity about what your rights and obligations are are key. And they're completely skewed because this weren't applicable to the services being provided. In which case, if something does go wrong, how are you yep. covered? Um, and the other thing is that if you copy terms from somewhere else, then um, they may be a pro-customer agreement. Mm. You, don't, you don't know. You also don't know how many times it's been copied from somewhere else. It could, so the, <laughs> yes, the mistakes can be yeah. compounded. Um, so I, I think um, it's easy to get your terms sorted or reviewed by someone. Um, not necessarily me. Um, but... It's worth spending a little bit to get it right than spend a lot down the line trying to remedy the situation because you've got incorrect terms or inappropriate terms uh, and therefore you're exposed financially. Um, If we, I mean, it's one of the dilemmas, isn't it, for small business owners, especially when you're relatively new, cash is always tight. Mm I guess the old perception maybe of old school of lawyers is, you know, an hourly rate and, you know, can be a bottomless pit. Yeah. You mentioned you do fixed fixed contracts in terms of fixed price, sort of a package, is it, so that people yeah. can come? That's correct, yeah. So we call it our contract health check. So if you've got your own documents we've already created, we'll go through them, review mm-hmm. them, update them. Um, or we can create brand new documents. Um, yeah, we also have a startup break because we appreciate that for small businesses when they're starting up, they don't want to invest all of their cash mm-hmm. into legal documents, and they shouldn't do. Um, they should be focusing on building their own business. So we try to make it, our services more accessible to businesses um, 
and ultimately we want to go on that journey with them to ensure that they're legally covered. And I've seen a number of different occasions where um, uh, I've worked with clients and they've spent a thousand pounds plus that with a quite large mm. law firm. I think the top 100 UK law firm. And they gave them a, a 10 page non-disclosure agreement, uh, which had some errors in it when I reviewed it and just wasn't fit for purpose because the client just wanted to have a short document they could provide to a customer to have a confidential discussion and they don't want to be having to say, read this 10-page document because it's just not practical to do so. Um, my standard disclosure agreement is a page and a half, mm. just to put it into context, yep. and costs a fraction of the price. Yep. So it's not always the best route to to go to the bigger firms, yeah. although majority of them are will, will do a good job. Yeah, I guess that's where, it, because you specialise, it helps, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, and you do find um, there's there's not a huge amount of commercial laws around. No. You do get people who um, dabble in certain areas of law, so they may be a person of all areas of law, as they say. Um, you do run the risk that they're not an expert in that field. So, for example, I've had clients where um, they've had terms and conditions created, um, but they were a consumer-facing business and there was nothing about consumer terms as I mentioned earlier there's specific things you need to address like cancellation rights that just weren't addressed at all so actually mm. those terms would fall foul of the legislation um, and, and bottom line I guess that yeah. means you can't enforce does it if, you, if your terms of business are yeah, well, valid they, they, they're open to be challenged yeah. by, by um, your customers and therefore yeah, it's going to be more difficult to enforce them um, and the courts aren't going to be impressed if it gets mm. to that point so um, I said it's worth getting someone who's specialised in commercial mm. law, contract law, to look over them just to to make sure they, they are fit for purpose. Yeah. And um, what I try to do is spot the issues before they arise mm. to avoid this prolonged uh, process of, you know, if you have a dispute, the worst thing is when you get a claim for them through the door. Um, so having clarity on the terms is essential. Yeah, it makes it easier. Yeah. And... and- when if so you're issuing so if, for instance I've got terms of business on on my website, mm-hmm. people presumably have to accept the terms and conditions before they move on to actually complete the contract. Is that is that the yeah. the, the process it need you can I mean can you can't do it after the event for it. No, um, so it's about notice of the terms. So when you um, engage with a customer or supplier for a contract, particularly if it's an e-commerce site, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you do need to have a very clear um, notice that these terms will apply at the point when the contract is made. So for websites, that's why you see the tick here to accept these terms. Most people won't click on it to actually view the terms, but that's just to ensure that the customer is aware of the terms that are binding on them at that point. So when the transaction is affected, those are the terms that apply. And... There's a number of different ways to incorporate your terms. Um, you may want to reference your terms and conditions in quotations or proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, you, for example, with the e-commerce websites, you may also want to send a copy of the terms with your email, with your confirmation email. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a number of ways to do it, but yeah, essentially you need to ensure the terms are sufficiently brought to the customer's attention at the point when the contract is made. Okay. Now, in know. A- and this is a layman's approach here. Now, now, I've heard it said that terms of business can't be unreasonable or unfair. 
Therefore, when I'm being issued terms of business, you know, there's a bit of me that says, is there any point in me reading this? Because it's a bit like Apple, isn't it? You know, when yep. Apple send a new one, there's pages and pages. My guess is nobody reads it. Or if you say you don't accept it, then you're not going to do business with Apple, which is yep. difficult. So is there a bit that says, actually, if they're all reasonable and fair, why not just sign them and accept them? Okay, so for consumers, yes, you're kind of right. So there's mm-hmm. the Unfair Contract Terms Act. Um, which dictates that certain terms can't be unreasonable, particularly in relation to exclusions of liability. Mm-hmm. Um, so the likes of Apple, it is kind of a take-it-or-leave-it basis. You're not going to approach Apple and say, well, actually, mm-hmm. I have issue with Clause 13B. Mm-hmm. They're not going to entertain it. It's a take-it-or-leave-it approach, and if you want that service, you're mm-hmm. going to have to agree to it. Um, so from a consumer perspective, um, you're probably more covered, but you can't necessarily rely on the fact that all the terms are going to be great, they're not going to be in your favour at the end of the day, they're going to be in favour of the service provider. Mm-hmm. Um, for businesses, it, it's um, a bit less regimented. So mm-hmm. under English law, the courts uh, and um, Parliament are quite happy for businesses to arrange and allocate risk between themselves. So you can agree pretty much any terms you like between yourselves. Um, there's situations where Unfair Contract Terms Act will apply in certain situations. And there's certain provisions in law which you can't exclude for example you can't exclude liability for death and personal injury um, and liability caps generally have to be reasonable so typically it's 100 percent of what the fees are 100 to 100 percent is is generally seen as reasonable but obviously mm-hmm. case all changes from time to time um, but yeah essentially businesses can agree any terms between themselves so they can be as unreasonable as they mm. like in, in certain situations um, and they'll be enforceable because the courts will see it that while the parties have got bargain strength respective to their own businesses and can have those discussions if they decide to proceed, they're doing so on the basis that they're in the knowledge of what they're signing. So that's what's really important to know mm. that, well, what terms am I signing up to? Mm. Um, so again, it's, it's worth having third party agreements reviewed mm. because ultimately, if you're using a supplier, the chances are their agreement is going to be completely in mm. their favour. So is that something that uh, we would use a lawyer like yourself for? So if I had a terms of business from a supplier, and actually, because they're often written in quite a legalese terms, that actually something that is pinged over to you and you can cast your eye over it and say, actually, clause three sounds, yeah. are you sure about this, that, and the other, and clarity? Yeah, so obviously, um, we've used thousands of contracts now, over mm. <laughs> I um, years of uh, practicing but um, because of that I'm able to spot the issues quite quickly so we've adapted our services to provide a, a really easy way of clients to be able to assess what the legal risks are in a contract so it's our shall I sign contract okay. so it's uh, sorry shall I sign service I should say. Yeah. Um, which um, basically we can adapt our level of input depending on what you need so if you want a, a snapshot report um, we can do that so we'll just give you a bullet point list of key issues in the contract if you want a full markup, we can do that. Um, so we can basically go through and highlight all of the risks, all the things which aren't necessarily in favour. We can also um, amend it, uh, amend the contract so it is more favourable to you. And obviously we can have that discussion with you to um, see what the key issues are for you. Um, and we can also add comments into the document so you can send it back to the other side and say, well, mm-hmm. this is the legal opinion we've sought. Um, these are our comments if you want to proceed. Um, we can also manage negotiations um, for clients as well, so we have a huge amount of um, experience in mm. negotiating contracts, um, 
just done a, a huge one with uh, Walmart in the US. Um, and yeah, it's, just, it's a prolonged process and lots of long nights, but um, it's, it's really good when you get to an end result and the client's really happy because they've got a reasonable commercial position yep. at the end of it where they're comfortable with the legal risk, particularly in somewhere like the US where you're more likely to be sued. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Now, I mean, again, this is a, something I see a lot in terms of invoices. I often see on invoices people have statements, you know, that you know, the, the goods belong to me and, until the invoice is paid in full. Yep. Uh, how, how does that stand? I mean, is that a simple, straightforward thing to do or, or not? Yeah, so um, it's basically uh, a retention of title um, point. So if you've got a clause in your agreement which says that um, risk in the goods passes on delivery, and title passes on payment, that's quite a standard position. Um, because you still own the goods um, whilst payment has been received, worst case scenario obviously is you're not paid for those goods. You'd have the right then to go onto the client's premises to obtain those goods from them. Um, and ultimately it reduces your exposure because you're, you, you've got something physical that you can hold on to. Mm. Um, you do need to reserve that right to do that in the agreement and obviously um, for consumers, it can be a bit more mm. um, blurry as to to what extent you can go onto consumers' premises and obtain your goods back from them. Mm. But for businesses, certainly, you can say you have to keep the goods separate from your other products. You have to make them available to us. And would this be in the terms of business? So in the terms of business to start with, and then you're reinforcing it by putting it on your invoices or... Um, you could have it in your terms of business as long as in your invoices, ideally you should refer to yeah. the you know, they incorporate your terms of business. Yeah, um, you, you don't need to restate the terms each time. Okay, but if it was if I didn't have terms of business and I just put it on the invoice, does yeah. that work? In terms of just having a retention title clause yeah. in the invoice, um, yes, potentially. So, mm-hmm. um, the the issue is obviously if you don't have a full set of terms. Um, it's going to be a standalone clause mm. and there's going to be slight ambiguities to what terms apply to that. So mm. what, what's, what governing law is applies mm-hmm. is that deemed to be the entire agreement between the parties. For example, if um, when you gave them the invoice, you said, oh, don't worry about this clause, it's not going to apply. Mm. What would be enforceable then? Mm. Um, so ideally you should have it all set out in your terms of conditions business to cover off those kind of points as well. Okay. That's been fascinating, Ryan. Is there, are there any other points you wanted to raise or issues that you were thinking of that actually you'd love people to know that you know if there was one thing to take away, it would be this? Um, I, th- I think you just need to ensure that you're comfortable with your terms and conditions, that you know what's in them. Mm. You don't want to be in a situation where you're lying awake at night thinking, what have I signed up to? Am I exposed? Is the business going to go under because I haven't allocated my risk correctly? Um from my experience, it's very easy to get your terms and conditions up to scratch, and so they cover you effectively. Um, and it's not as expensive as most people perceive. I think there is a perception that going to see a solicitor is going to cost an arm and a leg. Um, we've tried to adapt our services so it's more accessible to do that, and we can kind of work in partnership with you to ensure you get a good end result mm. with all of your contracts. Mm. That makes sense. And in terms of your history, then Ryan, I know uh, I know where you train, but tell us a little bit about your academic history and your okay. your legal experience. Yeah, so um, I went down the traditional solicitor route. Um, so seven years of training, 
Um, so I did my law degree um, at the University of Kent, um, got a first class, um, then did, I stayed on there actually to do a master's in international commercial law. Um, again, got a first, which was great. Um, so it was a long slog and to get to that point. I then went to London um, to do my legal practice course with the College of Law. Um, got distinction there. Then I did my two-year training contract, which was basically on-the-job um, solicitor training. Um, and then after that, I've, I did work in-house with a couple of um, companies whilst I was doing my training and uh, other firms as well, so based on this common arrangement, and kind of got to see the customer side of what they wanted um, and I built that into my current services. Um, and after I did my training, I w- went to um, Mills and Reeve and practiced there for several years. Um, and basically I saw a gap in the market to find a more cost-effective and accessible means of finding legal services. And there's not really too many businesses out in the market that do what I do, who just specialise in one area um, as and you know, basically try to create a niche commercial law practice. Um, and I should mention as well, so I'm currently classed as a non-practicing solicitor. Um, so because I just practice non-contentious commercial law, it's a non-regulated sector, but the plan is to convert my company into um, a law firm, essentially, by being regulated later this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But basically just to provide the reassurance to customers that actually it is on the same grounding as all yeah. other firms, but we have full professional indemnity insurance and yeah. everything else. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, I appreciate you coming in, Ryan. It's been really interesting and fascinating. And thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to know more, check out our website at thebusinessgrowthclub.net.